Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast. That it, is there a chicken in the background right now? I got super distracted. It sounds like there's a, a chicken. Chicken? No, there's yeah. nothing in, in All right. nothing in my room. Yeah, Weird. no chickens here. There is a turkey on our street. I just saw it in the yard. So there's a turkey on your street. Where do you yeah. live? Yeah. So I live in a town called East Bridgewater. It's definitely a little bit of a farm town, okay. and there's a wild turkey that. <laughs> holds up like what we would call downtown like it definitely holds up traffic like it walks around the main intersection and just like stands in front of cars um like we've seen the cops have to chase the turkey to put it in oh my god that's awesome we had like a mattress delivered and it stood in our front yard and just like cackled at the delivery people the whole time (laughs) like it's a fucking is that who's been stealing all the packages around town it's a fucking le- it's Frank the turkey. He's like an absolute <laughs> legend in this town. Like he runs the town basically. He's uh he's he's the mayor. He is absolutely the mayor of this town. So, <sighs> all right. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast. It covers every single horror movie franchise, one movie in one episode at a time. I am your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing tonight? I am doing great. My long con has paid off. Uh, Since the beginning of this show, my entire goal has been to eventually get to the Joyride series, just to talk Joyride 3, uh, because no other fucking podcast would let me. Uh, We have basically scheduled this series five <laughs> times now literally we've had it on the dot i went back and found a document from the first month we did the show and it was like the third franchise listed <laughs> it's funny because like i've wanted to talk just joyride three for so long because i have such fun memories of watching that movie and i didn't realize until now months uh, i don't know a year and some change later that i don't also have to revisit Joyride and Joyride 2. Right. So, you know, it comes full circle. But yeah, I'm so excited, definitely. And these are all first-time watches for me. So, you know, I have, yeah, I mean, again, probably not as much to say as we did when we talked about Alien or Friday the 13th, but, you know, I think we'll have a good time with this franchise for a few episodes. So Jerry, we're joined by a pair of guests today because you know, movies like Joyride need as many people as possible to sing the praises for them. So we needed to pack the show as best we could. So do you uh, do the honors if you don't mind yeah, and introduce of, our illustrious Of course. Uh, our two guests going on this Joyride of this, this road trip of an experience with us. Uh, we have Alex Secker, the writer and director of Follow the Crow and Onus. Alex, how's it going, man? Yeah, not too bad, thanks, man. Yeah, how are you? <laughs> Pretty We're great. I'm, I'm excited, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel incredibly posh. That that's that's the problem here, is I'm <laughs> like aware of my overly British accent. <laughs> oh, it sounds, sounds so you're great classing it up. You're classing yeah. it up. What part of Britain? My wife is from Cornwall, so Oh, I'm from Wiltshire, so it's actually like the, the poshest part as well. Okay, excellent. <laughs> All right. Uh, we, yeah, yeah. We also have returning guests, uh, Daily Grindhouse, Scribe, Consequence of Sound, Malort, Spokesman of the World, The Man, The Myth, The Vanderbilt, Mike Vanderbilt. What is up? 
Oh, hey, 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 guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Always a pleasure to join you guys on the Pod and the Pendulum. And uh, Joyride is, uh, I don't know if I call it a favorite, but I know, yeah, it is. It is. I think this is uh, a very good genre thriller that I know the word gets tossed around a lot, but I do believe it may be actually 100% overlooked. That See, I, that's what I'm excited to talk about on this episode particularly, is I revisit it, and I don't think I had seen the original Joyride since the theater. Uh, I, I, I've seen Joyride 3 probably 30 times. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes and one um, of us, I believe. Right? And listeners, you need to understand Joyride 3 is not a good movie. I'm not saying that. Now, is it, an movie, enjoyable, is it an enjoyable movie? That's what I want That is know. 100% what it is. And any okay. movie that starts out with Rusty Nell putting a bag of meth on his rig and having two meth heads fight it out without getting dragged underneath the rig, I am there. Who but, directed that? Rob Zombie? Did he like do that as an uh, Alan Smithy project? See, I don't want to get too far into it because I feel like that <laughs> save episode it, will be save fun. It, yeah, really. Save it for that episode, right? <laughs> yeah. but safe, I, you know. I, helped, I, helped host, I helped host the premiere of Joyride 3 with Fangoria and not a single cast or crew member showed up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we're here to talk about the J.J. Abrams and Clay Tarver written John Dahl directed Joyride. And I say that because John Dahl. Oh, he, let's talk about him. Had, I am yes. so excited. This is, this oh. is what I was most excited about talking about on this episode. John so- Dahl, uh, really quickly, made three of my favorite films of all time. And right back to back, Kill Me Again, Red Rock West, and definitely The Last Seduction are three of the best movies ever made, in my opinion. So, you know, and, I'll give them And I think that uh, as much as I enjoy Joyride, it would have been improved by the presence of Linda Fiorentino, who seemed to be a favorite of John Dahl. Because in addition to those three films, he also did Unforgettable mm-hmm. with uh, Ray Liotta, and, uh, again, of Linda Fiorentino, and... Rounders with uh, yep. uh, what's it? Matt Damon and uh, mm-hmm. why, why can't I remember his name? Uh, Grumpy Norton. Grumpy Norton. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he was. Uh, he was. Uh, he, has, he has an interesting career too, or a notable career at least, because he what he attended Montana State University, uh, and was a student of Bill Pullman's, who would he, he would eventually direct in the la- in the Last Seduction. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, going into Joyride, like. I feel like not enough people realize the solid uh, group of of just filmmakers that made the movie. Like, even if it's not uh, a huge favorite of mine, I mean, you get John Dahl directing. You know, an early an early job from J.J. Abrams. Clay Tarver, like, this is silly, but he created Jimmy the Cab Driver for MTV. <laughs> you know? And, like, <laughs> that's a lifetime legend as far as I'm concerned. Like, Donald Logue owes everything to, to Clay Tarver. And, and um, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, go, no, go for it. No, I mean, to kind of build on what you were saying about John Dahl, I think, I see John Dahl, uh, he kind of reminds me of somebody like Larry Cohen. Very, very efficient in genre filmmaking. And I think what you're saying about like, for all the talent involved, Joyride is the best kind of forgettable B movie in that you don't forget it because it's bad. You kind of forget it because it's kind of, it's efficient and doesn't do anything necessarily 
interesting or different within the genre. It just does it very, very well. And it's fun. I, I, Absolutely. I think, that, I think that that's one thing that definitely needs to be addressed is the fact that it's not like, to me, it's not a movie like I'd write home about, but if, if it's on and I watch it, like I have fun watching it. It's silly. I mean, I, I, I want to reach through the screen and, and strangle Steve Zahn's character, but I mean, you know, he gets the job done. You're supposed to want to do that. It feels a lot like, you know, I think we kind of forget this because the streaming era in a lot of ways is kind of like taking such a huge dent out of like cable television, but it feels like one of those movies on like a lazy Saturday afternoon, you would throw on like the USA network or FX and it would just be on and you would kind of like, catch it mid scene and then be like, oh, I'll watch 10 minutes of this. And then an hour and a half later, you know, the movie's over and you've been like, you're planted on the couch. Like it's that I, kind of movie. In that I was sense, really surprised. It, I was, sorry. I, no, I, no, I was, was going to say, really, yeah, go you, ahead. Go, you go. No, you go, you go, you go. Okay. I was really surprised when I, uh, when I went to watch it for this, um, that it's 2001. In my head, it had always just been one of the 90s movies. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I want to definitely kind of talk about is where it sits in that time. And to me, this is the kind of movie that sits at the end of horror movies being a lot of fun again. And I think we saw that with the start of Scream, where they were a lot more cheeky. They had like these like kind of, quirky funny characters that you know i don't necessarily if you could say relate to all of them because they were a lot of like you know cw and upn and wb <laughs> network models which um cw uh, hot is a very specific kind of hot it's a super and you can sp- immediately picture in your head though if i say like they're hot for the cw you immediately <laughs> know what we're referring to it's right? like it's like pornography i can't tell you what pornography is but i i know it when i see you it know it when you see it we don't have the cw over here but i know what you mean as well <laughs> do you have the equivalent i wonder uh no we just have tv channels that buy cw shows and then okay. everyone goes oh that's a cw show <laughs> <laughs> it would probably be the dude from like it would be like bill burr or someone like that one of the dude from like <laughs> from like black books or rowan atkinson like rowan atkinson would be cw hot for like <laughs> isn't mr bean just like hot in general <laughs> right? he he is he is an icon of hotness over here yeah we oh man of him and everything like, you know, fuck, fuck Liam Neeson and his kid in Love Actually. I just want a, a side movie with Rowan Atkins' character. Rowan Atkins' character. No, but it's, it's funny because, like, Joyride, you, when you, you see the first film, and it's definitely one of those, like, franchises where you start off with, like, good production value, you know, a good director, a good uh, set of writers, you know, like, I don't know about a list, but ish. No, it's, 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 yeah, it's B it's a kind of a B movie with an A picture budget. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You got Marco Beltrami doing the score. And then by the third film, (laughs) you go from that cast to, I can't really name a single actor in the third movie. I don't, (laughs) I can't remember who directed it. I think one of the dudes that directed three or four of the wrong term movies. Uh, And, Rusty Nell, you go from Ted Levine, I mean, Buffalo Bill himself in the first film playing him, to Ken Kersinger, who played Jason in Freddy vs. Jason playing him in the third. Like, <laughs> the drop is, like, so astronomically large. I, I, but, like, 
I do feel yes. that this is the kind of movie that I have not seen the sequels, but the mere presence of the sequels kind of tarnishes it a little bit because mm-hmm. if it was just a single, when people see all three of them together, like at the store, like if you were at the video store, let's pretend that was still a thing. And you're like, oh God, it's just some lame, repetitive uh, genre flick. But the first movie is not that. I think it's very sharp. And as you said, very funny and very fun. So Alex, what was it about the first movie that drew you into it? Uh, So I reckon I first saw this, I must have been about 12, maybe 13. Um, And I managed to convince my mum to let me rent it from uh, the, the video store. With Final Destination, I remember that very, very specifically. I watched the two of them at the same time. Um, and this this movie scared the fucking shit out of me. And it was and it was specifically the bit where they're lent up against the wall and the camera sort of pans like moves in towards the painting. Mm-hmm. That just I couldn't deal with it at that age, and I I didn't watch it all. I just I had to turn it <laughs> off for some reason. That was too much for me at that age. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later that I sort of returned to it, mainly because of Fast and Furious, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I know another movie with Paul Walker where he drives a car. Um, and, uh, and yeah, when, when I finally came back to it, I, I was sort of surprised by how much, I mean, much like what you were saying before, uh, Mike, about it being the sequels tarnishing it. And... Um, and I and I'd sort of in my head because I'd never watched it the full way through, other than to that painting bit. I'd sort of got it in my head that it it was just this generic genre flick, like the sequels are. Um, and uh, and so I, when I watched it, I was surprised um, that it's. I mean, it's a it's a John Dahl movie, right? Like you were saying, it John Dahl it is a John Dahl movie. It's very much that sort of um, that sort of feel. It's that got more of a noirish feel than uh, yeah. uh, than uh, at, it will not explain, but uh, than a horror feel. I mean, yeah, not absolutely. to debate genre, but it's shot and feels like one of his noirs, which he excels at. It's also oh, got sort of a western feel, I think. Yeah, it? very, yeah, very western feel. Well, he used the same cinematographer on this as he used on a lot of his films, and I think the two of them together. Wow, what's his name? Shame on me. Give me a hot minute. Jeffrey Jor. Yes, and I think the two of them together just know how to shoot. It's a fetish, fetishistic kind of way that they shoot the American Southwest. Oh, yeah, hell, like 100%. Uh, what, I, I also think it's funny how Joyride, as much as J.J. Abrams, Clay Tarver, and John Dahl kind of had this specific vision for the film, I always laugh at the fact that the studio made them shoot so many different alternate endings, subplots. <laughs> I mean, they filmed, Lily <clears throat> Sobieski had to film scenes where she was romantically involved with Steve Zahn's character. Different, the same scenes where she was like romantically involved with Paul Walker's. And it was only in like test screenings that they decided what character would hook up with which one. <laughs> like uh, Rusty Nell died by shooting himself with a shotgun in one ending. Uh, he got ran over by his truck with another one. He got blown up. Like, if there's ever a movie that, like, like is the, like, one of the definitive studio tampering movies, it, it, I think it's Joyride. But, like, what's interesting is even with that studio involvement and them trying to force all these different ideas and these different tweaks to John Daw, I still feel like he came out ahead with a movie that gets the job done. 
and it feels very much i mean i think like uh mike said it feels very much like the tail end of that kind of fun era of of horror you know it was before like the it was before the french extreme movement took over yes you know it was before mm. the americanized uh really graphic remakes took over in the early 2000s like this was kind of in some ways, kind of a nail in the coffin, uh, coffin right. of, well, of that era. By 2003, so, you're going to see like Eli Roth is going to emerge with Cabin Fever. Uh, Rob Zombie is going to emerge with The House of a Thousand Corpses. A year later, you have Le Winnell and James Wan teaming up for Saw. The Hostel movies are um, right around the corner. Um, so you start to see like horror in the... T- early to mid 2000s take this shift to something that is like much more graphic and much grimmer and what you were saying about that it it's similar to if you look at movies from like 1981 or 1991 they still feel of the previous decade Mm -hmm. 81 movies feel from the seven like they're from the 70s 91 movies still feel like they're from the 80s and 2000 it's the 2000 october 2001 post 9-11, still feels, because, you know, however long it was in production for, like a late 90s horror flick, right down to Mm -hmm. the CW hot Mm -hmm. cast. Yeah, that's something, like, when we talk about 80s movies, to me, like, 80s movies don't really start to, like, 1984. Like, that, to me, is the cutoff point when I think of, like, this is a product of the 1980s. Like, 80 to, like, 89, 90 I think it's like what I think of when I think of like 1980s movies and everything before that has that like 1970s kind of new Hollywood feel to it overall with some exceptions, of course, but a lot of it's intangible. Like it's just a feeling. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily the costuming or Mm -hmm. the kind of film stock they use. There's just an intangible feel of what that decade Mm -hmm. represents that you almost can't figure out until 10 years on. We talked about it a little bit when we did our Friday the 13th part three episode, but like that to me delineates the shift in the series. I think four steps back a little bit to more of the first two, but three, like when I watched the first two Friday the 13th movies, I really got that like summer camp, New England um, feel to it overall. And then all of a sudden in part three, it felt like we just need a place to shoot. And it didn't look anything like the first two movies overall. It seemed like eh, kids don't aren't really going to care what the background looks like. Just get to the hack and slash. <laughs> well, I hmm. think that that kind of goes hand in hand with the Joyride series. You know, those first couple Friday Thirteenth films, it was about you know camp counselors and, hmm. and Steve Christie trying to reopen the camp and all that stuff. And then eventually, that series became more about you know horny teens coming to party hmm. at Crystal Lake and you know so on. Whereas Joyride 3, it starts out as this very noir-like kind of thriller, or Joyride does. By the time you get to Joyride 2, and especially with 3, they're just full-on splatter films full of one-liners. And mm-hmm. I think that that's why I like the third one so much. <laughs> that it feels, it feels the closest to a Nightmare on Elm Street film that, that we've gotten in the last decade. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that was the Nightmare on Elm Street that I wish I would have seen when I saw the remake. Like Ken Kershinger steps in there, makes one-liners, runs over people, their heads get popped off. I mean, they get ripped apart, you know, but it's so far removed from this first film. Kind of like if you watch, I don't know, Wrong Turn 42, it's very different <laughs> than that first film, you know? And, and I, 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 I agree 100% what Vanderbilt was saying. 
like if you go to like a, a video store back in the day or you go to Walmart and you get that three pack of Joyride movies, uh, you know, it kind of takes away from the first one because the first one is a very different movie. It's a serious, it's a very seriously just beautifully shot film. You know, it's like, I feel like it just does not get as much credit as it should because the way it looks is it's light years better than it should have been. Right. This is, there's so much style and that has to be due to Dahl and Jur on this one because they did, I, I don't know how much they, it, I, I don't think they don't have a writing credit on it, but it does feel very much like one of his movies. I mean, Abrams is credited for the script and Abrams at this point would have been working on Alias. He's a couple years away from um, becoming the executive producer of Lost. And I know that outside of the pilot, Abrams didn't really do a lot with that show, but he was responsible in a lot of ways for like crafting that pilot. And this is definitely like, if Steven Spielberg ever goes missing, the first place you look is J.J. Abrams' basement. Um, <laughs> this is full on, this is, you know, uh, you know it, it owes a remarkable debt to Spielberg's debut movie, uh, Duel, overall. Absolutely. In terms of, like, the tension overall, the look and the feel of it overall. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Like, this is a fun kind of chase movie. Over, so I can't... No, totally. Uh, did you ever hear that J.J. Abrams story about Escape from New York? No. I, I read a story with him, and it was an interview, and he said that when he was young, his father took him to an industry screening, an early cut of Escape from New York. And Abram was like, Abrams was like a little kid watching this test screening, and Carpenter, after the movie, took questions from people on how maybe, you know, he could approve the movie and so on. And J.J. Abrams, being this little kid, raised his hand and told him, hey, uh, you should find out what happens to this character towards the end. You know, maybe there should be a car crash or something as a joke. And then when the movie came out, it featured that car crash at the end. <laughs> well, Abrams, Abrams, had a, Abrams had a lot of pull early on. One of my favorite stories about Abrams is that he did the, some of the music for Don Dohler's 1982 classic, one of my absolute favorites, Night Beast. <laughs> really? He, uh, yes, he, uh, Don Dohler was a regional filmmaker in Baltimore. He did a lot of junk like the, he kept remaking the same movie. The Alien Factor, Fiend, uh, eventually the Galaxy Invader, but, and same thing with Night Beast. It's a similar plot. Alien crashes to Earth, kills a bunch of people, Alien gets killed. But with Night Beast, he perfected it. And there was an article on Don Dohler in Cinefantastic magazine, and Abrams wrote him and said i'm an aspiring filmmaker and he was like 12 or 13 and he's listed in the credits as i believe james abrams that he did a lot a little bit of the music for night beast <laughs> that's bizarre that's and it's something that you can't picture happening now right i mean there's no, no way no ever see that happen now um well like there's there's such reverence i think towards genre filmmaking in abrams and i think maybe he doesn't get enough credit because we always focus on lens flares uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know like like it's because of jj abrams that we got that oh my god like gorgeous glorious remaster of phantasm you know like like yeah. he, he makes that is one of us. Abrams is one of us. 100%. And I think that that's on display in Joyride. Like, he has fun with those characters. He has so much fun writing those characters. And those are characters that at some point you've either known 
or unfortunately were. I mean, I, I was such a punk ass as a teenager. I would do the worst pranks on people that I like sincerely regret now. Sure. You know, there was this there was this dude that spent an hour washing his car outside of a gym. And my friends and I were parked by there with super soakers full of soda. And we waited for him to wax and buffer this guy's car. And then we drove by and sprayed it. <laughs> like, and I think that that's maybe why Steve Zahn's character irritates me so much is because I was that kid when I was 16 and 17. Mm-hmm. And I recognized how much of a piece of shit I was. And it's just like, right from the beginning, you get that kind of like, it's, it's definitely a trope and a cliche of, you know, like, oh, wait, this girl might have feelings with me or feelings for me. Oh, I'm going to buy a car and drive across country just so maybe I might get hooked up. You know, like it's, it's ridiculous, but it's, but so it's much relatable. But it's it is. relatable. I think we can all look back on, you know, and we're all, we're four white dudes here, right? So mm-hmm. we probably had a similar experience. All of us could probably look back and think of like something stupid we did because we wanted to impress somebody, you know, we wanted to impress like a romantic partner. Um, all of us have that thing where you're like, sure. You know, whether it's like selling a plane ticket last second and buying like a shit box car um, or, you know, whatever it is, like you believe that in the character, like it's not outside the realm of possibility. I, I think everything in this movie about the characters is very believable and, as you said, relatable. Uh, one of my favorite sequences is later in the movie, because the movie's weird the way it moves. It, 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 it starts out kind of slow, then it picks up, then it slows down again. But one of my favorite moments is when they're all in the bar drinking and doing shots. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's necessary to necessarily necessary to the plot with Rusty Nail, but it's a chance to slow down and hang out with these characters that even Steve's on, you like, because he's, they're just fucking around. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that really makes the characters work for me as well is like, I, so I'm an older brother, I've got a younger brother, but the relationship between Walker and Zahn feels very, very real. Like they feel legitimately like brothers. Mm-hmm. There's a bit where he, um, he's trying to get him to sort of confess what's going on with Venna. Um, and and he's like, uh, so you're fucking her. And then Paul Walker sort of like stiffs up and doesn't want to talk. And that feels like a real conversation between two brothers, you know. And well, it's uh, funny. And also, oh no, good. Oh no, I was just gonna say. Also, later on, uh, when he's trying to get him to actually play the prank um, on Rusty Nail, he sort of punches him. Steve's arm does this like punch on Paul Walker's arm, and uh, I feel that punch having a younger brother who pulls yeah. his shit. Um. <laughs> there's that immaturity in the characters that I, I don't see as a detriment to the film. In mm. fact, I, I see it as a, as very being, you know, very uh, compliment heavy, you know, like that immaturity when, you know, early on when Steve's on, you know, having that conversation that you just mentioned, you know, whether he's fucking her or not. And what does Paul Walker do? He just dramatically drives off the road to get out of the car and like throw a fit. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's so much fun to watch. And And who hasn't who hasn't had that family member or friend that it's a complete fuck up that you've had to bail out of everything? But after you bail them out, or you've been that person, yeah. Or (laughs) after you go out of your way to bail them out and help them, they would still try to bang your girl. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And you definitely get the 
feeling that like Walker's character of, of Lewis like totally idolizes and looks up to his big brother, even though his big brother's kind of a fuck up. Like he mm. hasn't seen him in five years, but you know, and he's basically driving out of his way to kind of put off seeing his wannabe girlfriend just because he kind of wants to help out and impress his big brother. Oh, totally. And I, I think one, like one of the things about the film, and I'm only mentioning this now instead of later because it's fresh in my mind, and I think it's probably my favorite thing about the movie because it's so fucking ridiculous, is after the two brothers go through absolute hell early on, like they, they basically, are, they, they're to blame for a dude getting his jaw ripped out. Uh, another guy in an ice truck gets mowed down. And what do they do? They just go on their, about their time, like acting <laughs> like nothing happened. Hey, hey, let's not tell her. Let's just go on. <laughs> like, uh, how could you live with yourself after that? Like, it's it's so much fun. I think there's a lot of like toxic masculinity in those characters, you know, where they're sort of like, um, they're, they're so sort of privileged and, and unaware that, of the like consequences of their actions that, like you said, they just ignore it. Once it's over and done with, as far as they're concerned, they've got away with it. Uh, after he's pushed them up against the tree, they're, they're fine. It's just, like you said, let's just go back to, to normal. Everything's fine now. <laughs> but who would, who would believe that, though? That, that's the thing. Like, he tried to kill them by like crushing their car against a tree. And he's like, yeah, I'm just playing a joke, too, basically. And they're like, oh, okay, no worries. <laughs> well, there's definitely a boys will be boys feel to this movie that I think that if you were to do this in 2020 you wouldn't be able to get away with but it doesn't feel out of place in the time and era that it comes from. That and like, see I'm, I'm accidentally always referencing Joyride 2 and 3. Uh, later on in the series it became more about kind of like a Saw-like approach but mm. more humorous where Rusty Nail just really got off doing these awful torturous things to people. And like vile things, like ripping them apart and stuff. Uh, whereas this movie, you kind of feel like his anger is is warranted. Absolutely, you know, like mm -hmm. like they they embarrass him, embarrass him so much. Like you can hear him basically talk to the guy next door in the motel, and he feels extremely embarrassed. You right. know, and it's like one hundred percent of everything that happens in this movie is a direct result of their uh, kind of cruelty. Whereas later in the, the, the series, he just gets off on hurting people. Right. So, I mean, I, it's, it's an interesting approach. And, and to double down on what you're saying, and I think this is something that John Dahl does very well. He, he never, the characters are never wrong place, wrong time. They always make a decision that puts themselves in this situation that everything that happens afterwards wouldn't happen if they could have done it. And they had a choice. And these guys could have chose not to be assholes about the whole thing, but they were. And they, pro they probably crossed their mind, the characters, every time they were in another situation with Rusty Nail, where, man, if we had, and it's a simple thing, if we had just not messed around with him on the CB. Hey everybody, Mike here. Want to take a brief minute or two to let our listeners know Jerry and I have just launched a Patreon page over on patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. What does that mean for the show? It means we're going to continue to bring you a free episode every week covering every horror movie franchise, one episode and one movie at a time. That will never change. Our tiers start at $2 a month. Anyone who subscribes at that level 
we'll get a, at least one bonus episode and one blog post every month. It means we'll be able to cover movies that are normally outside of the purview of what we do, whether that be hard science fiction, whether it be one-off or non-franchise horror movies, or whether it be Jerry and I taking a deep dive into the wonderful world of punk rock that we grew up on. Along with that, we are going to have giveaways for our listeners and other swag. Again, tiers are as low as $2 a month. Why are we doing this? Well, number one, it's a way for us to keep the show going and pick up the equipment we would need in order to improve it, make it sound better, um, edit it better, and basically bring you the best possible listening experience. That also would go towards the movies that we pick up overall and also the research uh, materials that we use, such as books, documentaries, articles, anything and everything we can do to do better research and be better prepared in order to continue to bring you the deep dive into all the horror movies that you know and you love. We want to take a second and thank all of our listeners that have supported us in the past year, and we promise to keep bringing you the best in horror every single week. So if you're interested in supporting us, again, go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum, and we thank all of you for supporting the show. See, I, I wish that he had tortured them more, and I don't mean in a physical way, but one of my favorite scenes in the movie where it's just Rusty really just getting off making these guys embarrassed the way that, that he made them is when he makes them walk into the, the, the diner yes. naked. Like, yeah. it's, it's, that, it's very mischievous, and it's very, like, like, diabolical, but in a humorous way. And I feel like that's what a lot of films from this time, or not, not this time, but would come after this in the, in the couple years that followed, lacked. Yeah. You know, I, I like the, the Texas Chainsaw remake, you know, for what it is. I like a lot of movies from that era. I love the French Extreme movement. But that being said, like, during that whole era, I miss movies where I could just go to the theater and have fun, you right. know, and, like, just, like... Every movie doesn't need to be a popcorn film, but I missed not having any of those for at least a good half decade. So this leads, I have a question. I think I, we were discussing this a little bit yesterday. This movie comes out October 2001. So it comes out like a month after 9-11 does. And I guess my question is, does this movie fare better at the box office? Is it remembered more? I mean, I literally forgot this movie existed until Jerry brought up, like, bringing it up for the show. Um, does this movie do better? And is it remembered better if, like, 9-11 doesn't happen? Because to me, that is the shift in horror movies. Like, what you see follow after 9-11 by 2003, 2004, you have, like, a much grimmer, darker outlook in cinema really across the board. I think that it's remembered ex no matter what era this movie would have come out at it is it would be remembered the same way because it's simply that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. Like you said it's a Saturday afternoon kind of pot boiler. You were talking about tropes and uh, you know cliches of the genre. This movie is filled with them but it's all done so efficiently that's mm -hmm. what makes it work. Do you think, though, it maybe has a fate more akin to, I don't know, like a, I don't know what you did last summer, where there's like Joyride 2 and it brings back the original cast again, you know, and it's just like Joy Rider, I don't know, like something <laughs> like a, you know, like where, because, I mean, let's face it, like Lily Sobieski in this movie, I think is very much set up to be like a character in the 
uh, in terms of like how you want to feel about her, like in the um, Jennifer Love Hewitt vein in, um, I know what you did last summer in that she's like an incredibly attractive young woman who you could easily build two, three, four movies around for teenage boys to come out and see. In this. <laughs> I think, I think uh, wrong now. I think that's part yeah. of the problem is that it's not really, it doesn't really fall into that, that genre at all. It's not a slasher. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not really one of those. It's a neo-noir. It's a sort of a, a neo-noir Western or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. Um, it's more that's... like the Hitcher. It's yeah. more that sort of thing. I think that it would have, honestly, I think the series would have been a full-on theatrical franchise had it not come out around 9-11. Because mm-hmm. what happened after 9-11, and I do think a lot of the very violent and cruel and cynical films that followed, I think were a direct result of that. Everyone was hurt. Everyone was angry. Everyone wanted someone to blame. Everyone wanted bloodlust. This film came out, and it was the kind of antithesis of that. It was a fun B-movie ride that, no, I mean, it, it did okay, but nobody really wanted to see that when it came mm-hmm. out because mm-hmm. everyone had this, this like, fire in their eyes. Like, I, remem- I remember going into my local mini-mart, and it was just uncomfortable how scared the people working there were. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I feel like had this movie come out maybe like four or five months earlier, or, you know, a couple years later, I feel like it could have been a very successful franchise instead of being like, oh, it made okay money, but now we're, you know, now we're finding new ways to cut people's feet off and skinning them. You know what I mean? Like, now now, now we really need, like, so many movies with Eli Roth talking about how much, you know, mm-hmm. how hard it is to be a white man. Uh that's the only good, reason but, I even saw this, I went to the show to see this. Uh, the only reason I saw this was because the old 97s were featured on the soundtrack. Yeah. Yes. And I, uh, I was attending Columbia College Film School, uh, downtown Chicago. I lived on the South Side, and there was a theater across the street that I would kill time between classes or if I didn't want to go home. And this was playing, and I knew the old 97s, uh, they had put out Satellite Rides that year, which yep. was a seminal album for me mm-hmm. and I kind of just went to go hear the song that I had listened to incessantly over the summer and was what I said 100% surprised pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. with the film there also seems like to be some kind of clashing within the soundtrack there's stuff like like old 97s that you think probably came from doll you know what I mean like like yeah you know I, I would have been surprised if, if this movie came out a few years later if whiskey town wanted to have been on the soundtrack <laughs> we had, but it, it's funny because like I always look at horror movie soundtracks from that era. It always just seems like the label, like trying to push whatever they think is yeah. the next big thing for young people onto those albums. Yeah, like half of the soundtrack is like music like that, really great bands like that. But then the other half kind of feels like the studio's like, hey, listen, we really want to get more mileage off of the Roswell soundtrack. So let's kind of also push those kind of bands <laughs> yes, on there too. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm surprised that like since field wasn't somewhere on the soundtrack. That, that's a good call. Yeah. And TV soundtracks are notorious for that. Well, too. you could definitely see like um, in a couple of years, like Lucero would have been on the soundtrack drive by truckers would have been on, you know, it would, you would have had like Sunvolt or Wilco. It would have been full on like alt country. Uh, for 20 tracks, which I would Jesus, be there for. Man. I would be I, I, you know, Mike, I, I, there for it. I, 
didn't think I could love you more. <laughs> <laughs> I love me some good old, you know, good old country. Absolutely. Oh, me too. And it very much fits the aesthetic of the film. And Zal, Zal uses quite a bit of that uh, in uh, Red Rock West, or at least uh, mm -hmm. there's at least two tunes that have that kind of vibe. And Dwight Yoakam's in that one too. Right. Let's put it this way. I would much rather have a soundtrack filled with like Lucero in old 97s and like the Cherry Poppin' Daddies, which would have been like another <laughs> staple of this era. Like you could not, you could throw a dart at a wall of soundtracks and one out of every four of them would have had like a Cherry Poppin' Daddy song. <laughs> you know, it's Honestly. funny. I used to, I used to live in Corvallis, Oregon. And uh, this is like, I don't know, 95, 96, maybe years ago. And some friends of mine took me to this little venue called uh, the, I don't know, some stupid venue. And they were like, oh, some band you have to see is playing. And it was the Cherry Pop and Daddies. <laughs> this is before they broke, before they broke. Well, because they weren't really even a swing band. They were more of a rock band with mm -hmm. horns who oh, had a couple man. swing songs. And then they I put saw... them together for that Zoot Suit Riot album yeah. because of the, the trend that was happening. I saw that band with you know wearing my eyeliner thinking i was thinking i was dark mike and ness thinking you're mike yeah ness. mike ness yeah, no told 100 percent. and <laughs> i walked out of there saying this band will never play another show i call it like i'm guaranteeing it and then like <laughs> a couple few years later i ate my words and it was the worst era of my life dark that's just oh it was a really dark time when like swing music kind of held collective sway over our conscious for about a six month to two year. It really was the darkest time. Dude, pomade was like off the shelves during that time. Yeah. Nobody I'm, won that bet. Nobody no. expected that to be, I think uh, I was watching something <laughs> at MTV once where they were talking about how everybody thought that electronica was the next big thing that was going to happen in the late nineties. That was going to be the huge pop radio thing. And then out of nowhere, here comes Brian Setzer swinging in with an electric guitar, leading an orchestra, no. and changed everything. Do you know how depressed Moby probably was during that time? <laughs> he was just waiting for. Uh, he got his break. He got his break right around the time of this record. Oh Lord! Oh, Joyride's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, it's 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 a lot of fun, and like the decisions that the characters make are so ridiculous in the best way. Like, oh, you're, you're going on a road trip to go see your girl? What should you do? Obviously spend $40 on a CB radio. <laughs> like, that's so wild. That you know? is like, the only point of the movie where I was kind of right. like, oh, okay, this is a little bit of a stretch. I don't know, though, because it's pre, it's pre, like, wide, you know, it's pre- Pre-cell um, phone. Pre-cell phone. For the most part. Pre-high-speed internet, pre-smartphone. Um what are you going to do? Like, they don't even have a CD player in the dashboard. Um, <laughs> You're right. There's not even a tape deck. I think all you could do is hope you could get maybe one or two, like, AM stations in. Um, and if you're like, hey, what are you going to do? Talk to each other? Yeah. God, they don't even like each other. Right. You know, and this is probably like a few years removed from the jerky boys, but it's probably like the last <laughs> era. It's like the last time in human history that you could get away with pranking somebody and like have no consequences come from it. Um, so why not like fuck with a bunch of truckers on a CB for $40? Like if you uh, no, have to I, drive 
for a week. I get it. I get it. But you might, you know, lose a jaw in the process. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Like, honestly, like when the violence does hit in this movie, like it's, it's pretty intense. Like Mm -hmm. that shot of that dude in the bed. I had forgotten about that. That was intense. That was crazy. And it's funny because like, this is also a film like though, like Steve Zahn's there for comic relief. I would never picture him in this type of film around that time. Mm-hmm. You know, because you have like that thing you do. You have Reality Bite. You know, you have all these like very comedy-driven films. Yeah. Saving Silverman yeah. comes out exactly. The and then um, like, who's the guy that said, "Hey, get that silly guy and put him in this like neo-noir westernish." film where well, they fuck with or them. unless the script called for a silly guy and That's zon's true. agent was like this is your thing this is what you do <laughs> i mean this is your your cw hot uh yes. get on that <laughs> this is definitely the the peak of like trying to make steve zon happen as a star because you know he's within a couple years he's in things like sahara national security he's doing voiceover work for movies like Stuart little he's appearing with like eddie murphy and daddy daycare so he's like anything that he does dramatic work like riding in the car with boys anything that he can kind of get his hands on like it's like we are going to put you over the top and it was kind of like rolling that boulder uphill like he never quite got to the top of the mountain i i not to criticize i think he's handsome enough but he's not a leading man he is a character actor and he does that character very well that said i was shocked and pleasantly surprised when he turned up in war for the planet of the apes Mm -hmm. he's great oh yeah he's great in that movie well i'm trying to think like what might have gone against him here and eh, I guess it's a couple years before Joyride, but it's kind of in that peak era. Like, I would say that, like, he shares a lot in common in terms of his, um, in terms of his charisma with someone like, who, who played Stifler in the American Pie movie? That would have been... William Scott. Shaw William Scott. I see yeah, them so as like... Kid, I used to get them confused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see them as like cut from the same mold, but I think like Sean William Scott, like A, has more range overall, and B, is like a more traditionally handsome, Absolutely. funnier dude. Well, so I feel, I feel like, like a Highlander. There can only be one. And <laughs> I, I feel like... I feel like and he'll get all on, those roles. I feel like Steve Zahn's agent tried to push him on everything, but everything that wasn't the silly buddy role was probably taken up by Josh Hartnett because he was more attractive, (laughs) you know? And I can only imagine Steve Zahn being pissed because he's like, dude, I actually comb my hair and this fucker's getting every role right now. (laughs) I think Steve Zahn and Paul Walker and and the whole cast is great in this. Yeah. Uh, this and is the first... They have a real natural chemistry mm-hmm. together, the two of them. This is the first movie I've ever watched with Paul Walker in it. Like, I've never is this seen... this the first Fast movie where he drives a car? It might be. It might be. Cause it's no, because Fast, Fast and the Furious came out in 01. So this, I, I think this is I, 01 too, though, I think, isn't it? I, this I is think... the year of Paul Walker driving cars. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to do my research right so, now. So basically, in the same year, he started in a remake of The Hitcher and a right. remake of Point Break. So like, part, <laughs> genius. part of the reason you need to support our Patreon friends is because we can do the research ahead of time if we can afford the materials. <laughs> so $3 <laughs> helps. You know. So your $2 a month goes a long way to making sure we know the exact chronology of Paul. You know what's funny? 
well, it's funny. I was sitting on my bed and I was telling my wife, oh man, I need to revisit Joyride, but I don't own them. And she's like, okay, well, we checked like every streaming service that we have and we subscribed to like pretty much all of them. And not a single one had it on there. Right. So my, my wife, I just looked over at my wife. She's like, got to pay for do, it. Do we need to rent Joyride? I was like, yes, we do. Uh, Fast and the Furious was released on June 22nd, 2001. And as of this recording, it is playing at 2 a.m. tomorrow on the TBS network. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So this would have been all right. Yeah, this would have been like just the start of Paul Walker's kind of rise at that point. And you know what's crazy is like when you think of Paul Walker, it's impossible not to think of the Fast and the Furious films. But that dude, he was actually a really good actor. I like, think so, and you want to talk about handsome? Yes, right. That guy. That guy is a leading man. Paul Did Walker. Did you ever see ours? That's handsome. He, no. He, yeah. Paul Walker transcends C C B. Uh, blah, 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 UPN handsome. He goes straight to like full on network handsome at that point. Yeah. No, he was in this movie called Hours. I, I think that's the title. And mm-hmm. he's stuck in this hospital that's abandoned and it's being flooded, and electricity's out. And his newborn daughter with heart problems have to be hooked up to a machine is stuck in there. And he has to keep rotating this generator to get electricity so his daughter won't die while trying to escape in this flooded hospital. That's pretty awesome. That's like, a, no, it's that sounds like a Larry Cohen movie too. Right? Well, I think, and I could, I'm just thinking about like if maybe, I don't think Fast and the Furious, the first one wasn't a huge hit, but if it was a gigantic hit, the poster for Joyride would have just been Paul Walker in a car. All over it, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know too. Like Lily Sobieski had a fairly interesting, interesting trajectory in Hollywood. Like she started out as kind of like an it girl. Like she was someone that was cast in a lot of things. Like she tried the teen romance movies, but they weren't necessarily for her. Um, but she took a lot of dramatic roles, like The Glass House. Um, her probably big break would have been like Deep Impact in 1998. Uh, and for a while, like she was all over the place. And then not too long after this, like she starts really getting like smaller roles or B movie parts overall until she disappears right around 2010. Like she gets married and um, transitions to be- working more as an artist than an actress. Well, I, I think she's uh, kind of got a, a character actor kind of vibe to her too. Mm-hmm. Like not traditionally, uh, Hollywood hot. Like I, I dig her crooked nose. Like I like her look, but mm-hmm. like there's not as much of a market for interesting looking women as there are interesting looking men to mm-hmm. play oddball characters in films, I think. Yeah. But I think she's like, I mean, this movie in, in particular, like this is like that first shot of her is like the most gaziest of male gazes. Like, <laughs> oh, without a I mean, doubt. It's like you... her in her little nighty, and it's like, let's linger for like... Oh. A minute. That, that is 100% John Dahl because mm-hmm. Linda Fiorentino's legs, uh, he, he, nobody knows how to shoot them quite like he mm-hmm. does. Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, man, the last seduction. So, so to me, like, she is like, you know, to me, like, this could easily have been, you know, a transition to her moving to bigger and better things. And she actually talked about how uncomfortable things like this made her and how as she got older it made her want to leave Hollywood, which she by and large has done with there's a couple things here or there she's appeared in, but she said like basically that 90% of what she was asked to do was really sexual. And she really didn't want to do that. 
it wrecked havoc a little bit on her relationship at home in some ways. Um, and she has this interesting quote. She's like talking about how when you're acting, you're selling your appearance more than anything. And that when she had to kiss someone on screen, she would cry either because like she was attracted to them and didn't feel like she'd be getting, she'd have to get paid to kiss somebody. Or she was like, I'm not attracted to this person at all. I really don't want to kiss them. Like, why do I have to do this for my job? So it was kind of an interesting way of like looking at Hollywood and she basically said I don't need this anymore I'm an artist and I can raise my kids and I'll be happy that way it's a shame that's that's a shame that she felt like that I think though because like I mean in this movie she's a prop right like Mm -hmm. she she doesn't really do the character itself doesn't really have any agency but she brings a lot to that character Mm -hmm. even even so like she 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 adds a lot to the chemistry of the group, and she's and she's in she's and she's good to watch as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a real shame, I think, that that she yeah. felt like that because she's clearly got talent, you know. Right. You know who else has talent in this movie? Uh, Anna Mal playing herself on the porno on the TV. Oh boy. <laughs> Because when I watched that again yesterday, uh, Jerry, can, I was thinking, Jerry, can you tell me what film that is? I was, I was I curious. Can't. I, I really can't. was. Like, I was wondering who could I ask. <laughs> you know, I, I saw that and I go, you know, I've seen that before, and I know exactly who that is, but I don't know. But I um, mean, this film also in one of the deleted scenes, Walt Goggins is in this movie. I heard he plays a cop. Speaking of great character actors, right? Like I didn't even know that because I've never watched the deleted scenes. But so, man, this Walt movie Goggins. features two people that have died in car crashes: then Anna Mall and Paul Walker. Damn. That's just sad. <laughs> there goes All the right. fun of this episode. All right. <laughs> Talk about how fun this movie is. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh. I'd totally forgotten Jim Beaver is in this, by the way, though, until I'd watched it for this podcast. And then I was like, hey, it's Jim Beaver. I mean, that's the end of my story there. It was just cool. (laughs) I think Dahl just knows how to, and I think he's worked with the same uh, casting director that her name escapes you right now. I think he just has a knack for hiring interesting looking character actors and giving them leading man, leading woman parts. Mm -hmm. Oh, I I agree 100%. Like, if you look at, uh, I mean, Red Rock West, oh, it's absolutely. it's full of those. I mean, God, talk about a great neo noir film. Hard I, I, to I find. Think, Hard to find. Oh, I I have a VHS of it somewhere, but yeah, I've definitely been waiting for a good Blu-ray of that. But I, I think that that's one of the things that really stands out about Joyride to me. And I know I've said that probably a dozen times on this episode already. <laughs> overall, is the fact, overall, is the fact that I feel like at the hands of any other director, this film would not have been as good as it is. Because I, I think Dahl and the cinematographer have such an eye for noir. And they know exactly yeah. how to shoot it. They know exactly how to frame it. And they know the performances that will get the viewer to where they want them to get. And it, it's, it's, it's silly. It's fun. The s- decisions are incredibly idiotic. But it's impossible not to have a fun time with it. Nobody can yeah. shoot taillights and red neon drenched motels quite like John Dahl and uh, his buddy, the cinematographer. Shame on me. I think if Martin Scorsese directed Joyride, it would be trash. Scorsese. <laughs> it would just be like one long continuous shot and Scorsese's mom would play Rusty Mill. 
<laughs> I would. Get I, Don like, get Don I would enjoy that a lot. <laughs> Great. So, what do we think of like Ted Levine? That voice, man. That syrupy. Oh God! Crawl, like, I, absolutely terrifying to hear him in, uh, in every so single thing he's in. Like he is one of my favorite character actors around. Like I, I'm such a huge Ted Levine fan. Like not even just Silence of the Lambs, but this. Uh, I mean, Heat. He was in a really good Western. God, I'm, just, I'm drawing a blank. What? It was like an HBO Western. Oh, damn it. Anyways, it's a movie. Uh, I mean, that, and there was a film that came out a few years ago that I remember I got a screener for it. And oh, God, I'm awful on this episode. I'm forgetting that uh, one The too. Last Outlaw. The Last Outlaw was the... Oh, uh... The Last Outlaw. Yeah, that's the Western. Uh, the other one that came out a few years ago that I loved him in was Banshee Chapter. And that is a movie that should not have worked for me. But Ted Levine's basically doing his best Hunter Thompson impression the whole movie. And it's so much fun to watch. Like, he has a voice. I mean, it, it's, it's, you hear Ted Levine's voice, and it's the most identifiable voice ever. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I feel like he adds such a, a nuance to Rusty Nail. I mean, like I said, later in the film, you got Ken Kersinger, like Jason Voorhees, basically, you know, doing one-liners. And it doesn't work. You know, it's, it's incredibly dumb. It's fun to watch, but there's, it's not as, like, maniacal. It's not as, like, get under your skin as Ted Levine is. Well, Levine's voice adds a sympathy to the character. Like, you really, because let's face it, like, Zahn and Walker's characters, they're, they're two little dipshits, yeah. right? You know, I mean, they get the sense that this guy is incredibly lonely. Like, you know, right away, like, the minute you hear Levine speak, you kind of know his whole character's history and you can picture him just sitting there alone in his cab, completely just like desperate for any sort of human contact whatsoever. Uh, And there's that shyness to him when like, when Walker is kind of goading him on to kind of like sexed along with him a little bit and how awkward it is for Levine's character. Like there's no, you know, it's like, well, I guess I would tell you to take your clothes. He has no idea what to do. Um, And you wonder like, you know, Zahn's character wants to play this prank on this kind of asshole um, entitled customer, which by the way, like, and again, I couldn't help but think about the movie in the context of like when it came out, like seeing this giant irate white guy who's a complete fucking asshole, like berating the um, Hindu um, motel worker, you know, the dark skin, brown skin hotel worker and how awkward that played out even now, like what that would have been, would have been like 20 years ago to watch that in the movies. So the prank is supposed to be on this asshole, but who's really getting played here? It's the guy that's in a truck somewhere driving out in the middle of the pouring rain, stopping at the liquor store to get like pink champagne. He has to do all the work. All this guy, other, the victim has to do is open the door. You know, like who is the prank really on? And it's just like these two dipshits don't even think about that. that. And you can tell that this isn't the first time that someone's acted that shitty to Rusty. Mm-hmm. Because how bad his feelings are hurt in this movie speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Like he goes out of his way to spray paint road signs. You know, <laughs> like there is so much anger. You know, like he's so calculative in getting revenge that like this feels like like their asshole prank was like the last straw in a series of things like that that maybe have happened to him do you think he would have forgiven them 
if when he gives like tells Steve Zahn's character like all right apologize and what is you know like to your point before Jerry you were saying how like they all have every step along the way they can make a choice and they always make the wrong choice and it escalates from there on them do you think that if like they had just said you know what we fucked up we're sorry that it would have been a much shorter movie it would have been over at that point I don't because a man also lost his jaw right before that. <laughs> like maybe if he would have beat the guy up and been like, Hey, apologize and everything's fine. And Steve's on wasn't an asshole that kept stoking the fire mm-hmm. maybe. But I think there he was, once he got to that motel and found out that a prank would play it on him, it was like the point of no return. It was this, the snapping in him. That it was I think like, maybe no. his yeah. revenge might have been quicker if they'd apologized. Mm-hmm. You know? but, oh, definitely. Um, but yeah, I don't think he would have forgiven them. <laughs> are we are we supposed to like Steve Zahn's character? I think we're supposed to. I just don't. Right. I like them just fine. I guess mm-hmm. they are dipshits, but man, we've all like to what Jerry said. We've all been dipshits. Mm-hmm. We've all had dipshit friends. His dipshittery, though, seems to like transcend the standard level of dipshittery. <laughs> I mean, dip I don't shittery. like him. I, like, I quite like Paul Walker's character, but yeah. I don't like Steve Zahn's character. And, and also, like, he tries it on with Venner, even though... Like, and he, he does that thing where he sort of half assed asks him when he's half asleep on the bed. Oh, he's totally but, asleep. He's passed up. <laughs> but, like, yeah, it's, like, he's a dick, man. Total and, and asking asking him isn't even genuine because earlier in the car, he pretty much puts it on the table what he already reads from Paul Walker's character about Venna. Mm-hmm. Like, he knows. He knows that his brother is in love with her. So the fact that he continually goes after her still... And she kind of she kind of rejects him, and he kind of kind of basically shoves himself into a room, kind of with right. the, with the, the booze, you know. She doesn't kind of reject him. She's kind of like, well, where's your brother? Like, that's who I'm interested in. So yeah, and I don't. But it was shot two different ways, so who knows? Oh, okay. <laughs> would have been a much much different. I think it would have, Walker would have left them in the dust at that point if he had walked in and. They were getting it on. At that Can you imagine that ending? <laughs> Paul Walker just leaves and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. The rest of the, yeah, that's it. Or at the end of the movie, like she ends up with her, his brother and then he's like, fuck it. And then like runs. <laughs> Joyride 2 is him chasing them down on their honeymoon at that point. Yeah. He, he partners up with Rusty Nell and becomes a trucker. God. Yeah. Does that, does that like love triangle thing that the movie tries to set up actually go anywhere now that i'm thinking about it it doesn't no the movie (laughs) and that's what i like about this movie it just stops and has a great smash to black before the credits Mm -hmm. there's no epilogue where you know the the love triangle is solved or resolved it just stops and i i like that i appreciate that Particularly in genre films. Yeah. I don't even know if there's a love triangle so much as I don't think Venna had, I mean, I know you said it was shot two ways, but in the cut that I'm watching, like I don't really see her having any interest in the older brother. You know what I mean? Like he's like a fun nuisance to kind of, he's like fun to have tag along, but I don't think that she would have necessarily been put up with his bullshit basically. Uh, no, I, I don't he think doesn't so. see his, like his type. Who's Steve's on? Who is like, who, who, 
who would go for Steve Zahn? I think maybe Steve Zahn would. Steve Zahn would. <laughs> um, Jerry, you had uh, in your notes, your extensive notes that you wrote in preparation for the show, you had the line, they should have died at the end. So Yeah, that was, that was one of the only two notes I had for this movie is fuck Steve Zahn, which I meant his character, not him, and they should have died. Uh, just me personally, like it's the lack of remorse and it's only there. The remorse only comes from the fact that he ripped someone's jaw off and he's probably going to do that to them too. You know what I mean? There's, there's no arc. Like, you know what? I'm fundamentally sorry for what we did. It's more like, Oh shit. Your, your, tel- your headlights are, are, you know, blasting the back of my car. Oh no. You know, like, and I, I feel like it should have been, at only maybe it's cynical, but at the end, I do feel like he should have got to them. Maybe Vina too, just you know, for fuck's sake. I like, don't. I don't. Someone know. definitely should have opened the door, mm-hmm. uh, just for shock value alone. I think that would have been like, whoa, okay, where did that go? <laughs> I don't know if there was ever a moment like the movie doesn't really leave a lot of space for it to breathe a little bit, for them to kind of like reflect on what they did do you know what i mean like it's pretty much from the moment that you know they from the moment rusty nail contacts them on the cb and lets them know like yep i'm trailing you they don't really get that much time to breathe at all where they can reflect back on what they did and how awful it was i guess except for like those moments at the redneck bar you know Mm. So it's pretty much from that point on, it's like, go, 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 go. So it's hard to be like, you know, oh my God, I have the spike sticking through my knee. And you know what? Maybe we should, this is one to grow on at that point. Lesson learned, my bad. I think that's one of the strengths of the movie too, as, mm-hmm. as efficient genre filmmaking, is that it doesn't worry about all of that. Mm-hmm. Like maybe if it was made today, there would be a little bit more care to it. Right, or be a lesson along by a way. different filmmaker, but this is just not that kind of movie, and it doesn't want to do that at all. I think for me, like when this movie came out, I was already a huge John Dahl fan, and having seen Red Rock West and Last Seduction, I kind of wanted that kind of ending where you know every idiot would get their comeuppance, you know. And I, yeah. I, I think that, and I that's think what that he that, does. Yeah, yeah, he does it best. What was the original ending? Oh, there's like three uh, of them, I think. Yeah. So the original, uh, original. The, the original ending, I believe... I think the original uh, ending is Steve Zahn standing in the corner of the room and the camera drops. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I, I don't remember what the original scripted ending was, but I know there's, yeah, there's one where Rusty basically commits suicide by blowing his own head off and they find a whole bunch of bodies. I think that might have been it. That's a weird ending. Which would yeah. have made it kind of tragic if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there was that. There was one where he got into a fight with them and they, they got the upper hand and killed him. There was one where his truck blew up. Uh, the, the theatrical one is the only one where Rusty does not die. Mm-hmm. So I feel like he was set to die, but maybe last minute they were like, hey, maybe we'll need to make Joyride 3 for Jerry at some point. You know, <laughs> the character I feel the worst for in this whole movie is that ice truck driver. Because he was like, you know, like first he was villainized for just, he kind of looks a little bit rough and tumble. So you're meant to think that, oh, this is the bad guy here. And then all he does is he basically, you know, goes so far out of his way to return Paul Walker's credit card to him 
you know, and the next thing you know, not only is his truck blown to smithereens, but he's kidnapped, probably subjected to all sorts of torture, and then strapped behind the wheel of a barreling 18 dealer. <laughs> like, this guy did absolutely nothing to deserve anything that happened. See, there. I think the most tragic character is the drunk gentleman trying to help them hotwire that truck because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you know the second the real truck owner came out he probably beat the shit out of that guy probably <laughs> that's a great moment because i was thinking about it as i was watching it and i hadn't seen it in a long time that i'm like how does it happen in movies that the person whose truck you're hot wiring comes out at a bar at the exact same moment and that's kind of what you expect to happen but then it turns it on its head and it does it it's just some other guy who's ends up helping it. he's actually mm-hmm. listed as hot wire consultant that's the right. Oh my or in God. The, uh, oh, the credits, I believe. That is a plum roll right there. All right, gentlemen. Um, what else do we have to say about Joyride? You know, I, I, I think that uh, this road trip has been fun for me. <laughs> I think, I, think I, I really don't have much else to say other than it's, it's wild. Yeah. It's a fun late 90s, early 2000s little thriller. Like it's definitely better than I expected it to be overall and based on your description of the um next two movies jerry i gotta say i think (laughs) that like we're headed towards like lost boys territory in terms of like how the okay we will i think that we will head in that territory possibly with two but three is right where it picks up (laughs) three is basically three is the equivalent it's kind of similar to joe lynch's wrong turn two it's like a modern day video nasty. It's so okay. splatter filled. It's mm-hmm. it's glorious. So Mike and Alex, final thoughts on on Joyride. Uh, so I mean, like uh, my final thoughts are really just that uh, I really dig this movie. I think it's um, I mean, I I actually do think it's underappreciated. I think it's marketed entirely wrong. It falls into that sort of. Um, like you said before about it just falling in along with the sequels and stuff and being sort of assumed to be uh, a stereotypical sort of genre flick. But this is a lot better than that. Um, it does have that real sort of neo-noir John Dahl feel to it, which makes sense because it's a John Dahl film, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, like it, it's just really good. And and to be honest, it's a shame that of all the Paul Walker driving a car movies that got picked up and turned into a giant franchise. <laughs> It wasn't this one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like, I would have loved to see a, a Joyride 7 where Paul Walker's, like, <laughs> running a race. One, like, Rusty Nail's driving a submarine and they're driving away from it. <laughs> well, no, Ru- the way to Fast and the Furious movies go, Rusty Nail would have been part of the team by the third or fourth right. one. Yeah, yeah you know, family. <laughs> would they bring back Jim Beaver as some sort of big character <laughs> later on? <laughs> the guy with no jaw would come back and be the family. There's no such thing as too much Jim Beaver. All right, there's definitely no such thing. Joyride um, is a perfect example of B minus genre cinema. Yeah. Like if there's ever been a movie that's B minus, which almost makes it an A because it's so good at being a mm-hmm. B minus. Yeah, not every movie can be like Midsommar that makes you want to like, this is brilliant, but now I want to sit in the corner and cry for like three days after I watch it. You know, there needs to be a place for like fun popcorn movies. Well, I just love how gleefully happy it is to be just a fun popcorn Mm -hmm. movie as well. It never tries to be groundbreaking or world changing. It is just doing what it does. And that's, and that's awesome. Absolutely agree. 
All right, Alex, where can our listeners find your work? What do you have to promote for us? Uh, well, you can uh, read my blog on my website at alexsecker.com. Um, or you can, uh, if you really want to, follow me on Twitter and hear me rant about the UK government. Um, <laughs> uh, or check out my films, I guess. Um, follow the Crows is available to stream on Amazon Prime mm-hmm. um, for free if you've got a Prime membership. Uh, and Onus uh, should be coming out soon, although the, the distribution is being held up because of the current situation right. we all find ourselves in. <laughs> Pretty much just wave your arms, all of this that's going on <laughs> right now. Um, what is Onus about? Onus is a, I, I mean, I've called it a folk horror, although mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure what that, that means. Um, sort of Midsummer is a folk horror. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about someone gets burned alive at the end. It's pretty rough. <laughs> there is uh, there is some burning, um, but uh, it's about a young girl who goes to visit her her wealthy uh, partner's family, um, and they're up to no good. Shall we just say it's it's quite a traditional sort of uh, uh, British folk horror. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, yeah. We'll be on the lookout for that. And Mike, you always have a million things going on. <laughs> The busiest well, you, man in rock and roll, Mike Vanderbilt. Oh, I, you know. I'm, tr- I'm trying to play rock and roll again. I'm on mm-hmm. this website now called Band Mix. And uh, let me tell you, my rock of Gibraltar in unprecedented times is that band promo photos are just as embarrassing as they ever were. Uh, but you can, fi- <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Mike Vanderbilt. You can uh, find some of my work. i got some stuff coming up at Consequence of Sound, Grumpire, and of course, Daily Grindhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, what yeah. is is band mix like tinder for people that want to get into I, bands i wish it was more like tinder actually mm-hmm. but it's yeah it's it's a site where you sign up create a profile picture uh what instruments you play what you're looking to do what your gear is mm-hmm. and then you can scroll through and look for other musicians to start bands with or look for bands that are looking for Mm-hmm. what you do i'm looking to, i'm at this point in my life i'm 40 now i just i just want to join a band that already has material that i can mm-hmm. learn and not have to start from the ground right. up <laughs> how are things in chicago so you're back behind the stick at the- i am back behind the stick and apparently mm-hmm. uh illinois is doing very well we have some of the lowest numbers mm-hmm. as far as covid cases out there uh, out in the world. I, I do say, you know, whatever you want to say about uh, Illinois government and Chicago government, Lori Lightfoot, our mayor, and Governor Prickster, I think have been on top of things from the mm-hmm. get-go. Uh, we're all terrified that we're going to get shut down again, and it probably maybe might happen. I don't think mm-hmm. we're going to see any re- true return to normalcy until there's a vaccine, mm-hmm. and in my uninformed opinion, crossing my fingers for spring of 2021. But for the most part, everybody who comes into my bar is, well, they have to play by the rules because we, if you don't wear a mask, you're denied entrance. Mm-hmm. Like it's as simple as that. And I, I'm kind of enjoying being a dick about it because <laughs> I get this. Here's what happens. And God damn it. It's always, it's always old white guys. Yep. They, they walk in like, Hey guys, you know, you need masks on to come in. And it's a uh, always, Oh, we don't have any. And I look at him right dead in the eye. I go, well, then I don't know where the fuck you've been for the past three months. Right. Because this is a requirement everywhere you go. Then they go out to their car and they miraculously find their have mask. Have a mask. Which yeah, offends this me because now you're pushing me. Now you're testing mm-hmm. me. Now yeah. you're seeing, you know, who I am. I wish and we it, had more people like you over here in the UK because I often encounter this thing where I walk into a shop and 
put my mask on and they'll go, oh, no, you don't need to do that. Don't worry about that. And I'm like, no, I'm worried about it. I don't yeah. care if you're not bothered. <laughs> like, yeah. I... And then there's the, clowns, there's the clowns who walk into the bar, no mask on, and are putting it on as they walk up there. Like, no, 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 no. You, you need, please put it on before you yeah. come in. I'm, I'm not asking you for much here. Well, I guess as we've recorded this, Alex, they've lifted the quarantine requirement in the UK as of yesterday or Wednesday. I mean, um, that's such a great question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because my, every summer, my wife and daughter travel to the UK for like usually five to seven weeks uh, to visit her, her mom who lives like right on the beaches of Cornwall. And it's, it's great. And, you know, they were supposed to leave like next week for about seven weeks and that got canceled. So they rescheduled to like early August for three weeks and it's up in the air right now as to whether they'll still be able to go. And like, they're not behind me. I love my wife and daughter, but we've been (laughs) like in the house together since early March every day. And I'm like, please, um, please go. Like, I think it would be great if you got to go on this trip. Just so like, and they honestly, so they can have a break from me because like, I am no peach to be around 24. <laughs> you know, like. Who I is, can, right? Who is? I can, I can be a grumpy fuck, you know. We were just like out in the driveway trying to like do this geode kit that my daughter got for her birthday. And she almost like cut my finger like just basically sliced my finger off with a hammer and chisel and we were making a video to send to grandma and i definitely let out some choice f-bombs <laughs> and like alex i'm looking at you right now and like you were like the twin i've never had I feel- <laughs> well i'll take that as a compliment because you're I a very f- handsome I man. F- you are too i feel like my dad has some explaining to do like if, if he were alive i'm like so i don't know all right jerry are you still there yeah i'm there man that was was comedy right there what do we have coming up uh well we have uh in the next couple days we're recording a special closing episode of our alien series Mm -hmm. uh with charles de la zirica the director of basically the whole making of alien documentaries Mm -hmm. uh he edited the assembly cut of alien 3 he directed Dangerous Days, The Making of Blade Runner, which is my favorite documentary mm-hmm. of all time. One of my favorite filmmakers around. We're going to talk to him to wrap up the alien stuff. And then uh, next time, Joyride 2. Yep, Joyride 2. <laughs> we have I think I have to watch these sequels now. I, yeah. You I really enjoyed I really enjoyed how your sort of sentence went down then. It was like, and, and then Joyride 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we have any update on when we're recording the Lodge episode? See, Keith Buckley from Every Time I Die and Chris Dudley from Under Oath are going to be on that. But Keith Buckley, he's had, uh, I think, a couple issues with scheduling because he's having to basically, you know, stay with his daughter and a bunch of mm-hmm. other stuff. So we're waiting on that. But in the time, in the meantime, Chris Dudley from Under Oath he got a hold of me or I, I got a hold of him to reschedule and he was just, and maybe through a different film, like, Hey, do you just want to do one, you know, while we wait for mm-hmm. Keith? And he mentioned, he mentioned loving it follows. Okay. So, you know, maybe we'll do a one-off of it follows. To talk does, to Keith, Chris does Keith Buckley listen to our show? 
I don't think he does. All right. So I'll keep. I, I listen to your, his band a lot. So Keith, what is your deal, dude? I mean, like, it's <laughs> not like, you know, it's not like you're touring right now. So I'm not buying that. You know, we're on the road 14 hours a day, making the cities, man. Like, yeah, you're yeah, you're, home, you're, like you're, you're, only the vocalist is my favorite band of all time. How, What's your how deal? Old, how old is his daughter? I, you know, yes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, put her in front. If she's really young, put her in front of Caillou for an hour. You know, throw her in front of the iPad. Like, you know, it's, it's easy enough. Come on. Oh, if only, dude. I have kids. <laughs> do, I have kids. Do, it is you not make easy. this every week? Do I have to cut this part out, Jerry? Is this where we have to edit? <laughs> Most likely. You'll, 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 <laughs> you'll send me a DM. You'll send me I don't want to get blacklisted by my favorite band of all time. There we go. All right, listeners, thank you so much. Um, do us a, if you can do us a couple of solids right now. Number one, follow us over at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter, where you will get more of this high comedy that we do uh, here in the show. You'll basically hear my musings. Like, so follow <laughs> us over at Pod and Pendulum. Um, if you like the show, leave us a review. Head over to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your show, and leave us a review. Um, you know, if you rate us and review us with a few sentences, it goes a super long way to helping new listeners find us. It also lets, you know, it makes us feel good. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's just nice to know and hear what people are thinking of us. My favorite um, reviews are the ones that tell Mike to fire me. Fire so if you guys Jerry. could keep those coming, please. Uh, right. <laughs> we got a one star or it was a two star review where it was like, they sound like my two drunk uncles at Thanksgiving talking about movies. And I'm like, how is that not a five star? Dude, review? right? I want to <laughs> hang out with those uncles now. Fucking amazing. Um, so, you know, do that also, and I'm sure that I have posted it somewhere in the middle of the episode. Um, we do have a Patreon, go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum starts at $2 for our level. It will make, it will ensure that you uh, get a bonus episode every month, a bonus blog post every month, as well as access to our Slack channel. Um, so tears again, start at two bucks and that gets you more of the content. Um, I'm also going to pitch starting by the time this comes out, um, July 9th, my new show on the consequence of sound podcast network, psychoanalysis with, um, Jen, Fer not Jen Ferratu from the horror virgin and Laura Undersall, um, comes out where we talk horror movies and mental health, our debut episode which is like why horror fans, um, you know, why do we watch horror comes out Thursday the 9th. And we'll have episodes every other week. Until next week, thank you so much, listeners, and we'll be back with Joyride 2.